Hello, hello. Uh, here we are again with another episode of High Time for Change. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm going to address you as Yoko Ono once did. Welcome, people of Earth. Um, we're going to be covering part three of the childhood trauma series today. Um, but first, I wanted to tell you a little bit of a funny anecdote about me. I mean, I find it hilarious. And it's just very indicative of the addictive mindset. And it just happens to be really funny, at least to me, and hopefully to you. Um, one of my newest addictions, because I am an addict, and I tend to trade one for the other until it's all resolved. One of my latest addictions is called clickbait. And in case you're not aware of what that is, it's just some little clickable link and graphic that's on your Facebook feed about just various things. It could be, you know, the life story of someone famous or a bunch of cold cases, which I love, or my personal favorite, um, screen caps of when people just got savagely burned when they posted something stupid on the internet. And there's also another kind that had been coming across my feed for quite some time, uh, inexplicably. And I just vowed I would never, ever, ever click it. Um, the nearest I can explain it is it's like a fan fiction, you know, young adult, very, you know, provocative, sexy, romantic, but very formulaic tales about werewolves and, you know, how they find their mate and then they shapeshift back into humans and there's alphas and lunas and all that. It's nothing in the world that I would ever be interested in. I've never seen like Twilight and I refuse to. I will never see it until I die. It's just not my thing. And I'm not kink shaming anyone or anyone's interests. It's just definitely not me. But the other night, uh, the clickbait about the werewolf shit uh, included some scintillating details regarding some young bitch being ravished by the quote-unquote alpha triplet terrors who were further described as being all 6'4", well-muscled, with chiseled features. So naturally, I figured I better hop on over there and see what's going on with all this werewolf stuff. So I started reading, and for the first couple minutes, it was so predictably lame as I knew it was, I was just rolling for like three or four minutes. Then I stopped laughing and I continued reading. And before I knew it, like I started at 9.30 p.m. reading this. And then by 1.30 a.m., I reached the point of the uh, clickbait where it, just after the first mention of the, quote, huge sculpted manhoods of these alpha triplets was mentioned, uh, it now wanted me to go purchase an app in order to read the rest of the book. So, of course, I'm freaking out. I must read the rest of the book. I have zero money to download and pay on an app, but I started thinking of every possible way I could somehow get money to purchase this app. And this is 1.30 in the morning, and this is exactly what I used to do when I was, you know, spinning my wheels looking for dope for Mike or me. And here I am doing it again, trying to buy an app about werewolf fan fiction that I really don't give a shit about and is absolutely ridiculous. But I thought about it for a little bit, and then I just angrily turned the phone off and went to bed. I was literally thinking, like, can I overdraw my card with no money on it so I can buy this app? So it was just a hilariously emblematic lens-like thing to do. It was almost the most lens-like thing I've ever done. And I'm deeply ashamed of it, but I also think it's hilarious. So there's my little personal story of how my addictive thinking crops up on a random day. And thank God it was a much less damaging 
uh, little cropping up there. But um, I'm going to go ahead with my standard disclaimer. I am not yet a licensed medical professional. I am a student, and I am speaking from my heart, my experience, my education, my rehabilitation, the research I have done, and the experiences of those close to me. Any information presented on my podcast or any of the associated media platforms will be researched and verified. If you vibe with my advice and if I raise your awareness, that is wonderful. But it's not, however, a substitute for professional help from a medical or psychiatric provider. If you need urgent professional help, please seek it. Okay, moving on. The title of our show today is called No One Ever Is to Blame, Learning to Exist and Function as a Healing Being. Uh, This is after a song by the great British artist Howard Jones, and I am aware that the actual title of the song is No One Is to Blame, but I like No One Ever Is to Blame, and I love this song. Um, This was off of his 1985 album called Dream Into Action. Um, The song was also re-recorded and remastered in 1986 with Phil Collins doing production and his drum work. Uh, The song was one of his two number one songs on the U.S. adult contemporary charts. And again, I love him. Check out Howard Jones if you've never listened. He's an amazing artist. Uh, The real meaning of the song as he performed it is, I think, was feelings of rejection, loneliness, things never working out for people. My meaning is kind of an alternate thing. Um, What we suffer from are diseases that are incurable but treatable, and the negative manifestations are symptoms of our diseases. No one is to blame for conditions they were born into and the social problems, the insecurity, the poor choices that come from those. And this all then leads to the attitude that no one ever is to blame as in them. They are not to blame for all the misfortune and they fail to see their roles in their own history, which then leads further to feelings of futility, uh, focus of power located outside themselves, and it makes it all the harder to see Uh, why seeking treatment would even make a difference. And it makes it almost impossible to make a move towards that. No one is to blame for conditions that they were afflicted with through no fault of their own, like mental illness and diabetes or anything like that. But they are responsible, however, if they have the awareness of their issues and that they are treatable, and they don't commit to treat and manage them rigorously, especially if people are depending on them, like if they're a parent or if they provide for a household. Um, This was my main problem because I have a remarkable level of insight into my own bullshit, but my issues and bad early experiences with therapy and treatment really colored the rest of my life and made me really resistant to help or medication and basically managing my life responsibly even after I'd had kids. The fault with that was all mine, man. I had great opportunities and a large amount of support to get any kind of treatment that would have benefited me, but I refused to for a long time, and that's on me. Um, Here are a few choice lyrics that I love from the song. Um, You can see the summit, but you just can't reach it. It's the last piece of the puzzle, but you just can't make it fit. The doctor says you're cured, but you still feel the pain. Your aspirations are in the clouds, but your hopes go down the drain. And I just think that's very evocative. I listen to this song all the time, and I have my entire life. So, you know, beginning to go through daily life when you're embarking on a healing journey is often a really disorienting, uncomfortably unfamiliar, lonely, vulnerable thing. You're figuratively naked and without any protective armor. 
you know, you're feeling lost and craving the familiar, even if it was horrible. It's kind of like a stroke recovery, you know, Um, you have to learn to do tasks again, sometimes even speak well or write, Um, restructuring your thought patterns. You know, I myself have had a kind of a host of neurological issues since I was in a car accident and got a spinal injury in 2010 during my pregnancy with my son. I've suffered from aphasia or losing words, uh, zoning out suddenly and unable to remember what I was doing or the point I was at in speaking or doing a task. And I certainly have brain damage to some degree from my drug abuse, as did Mike. Um, Becoming sober and actively recovering and pursuing therapy has restored a lot of my mental function. A lot of my memories have been coming back recently, and a lot of my mental acuity is returning. I still have issues because I'm severely ADHD, and I am medicated for it, but it only goes so far. But it's still gotten a lot better. It's also allowed me to recover from and dismantle my extremely disordered thinking that I've employed for almost my entire life, and certainly highly during my addiction. Uh, As I stated on my previous episode, people come to a watershed moment when their lives become untenable, which again means unable to be stood any longer, like unmanageable. From that moment on, one must make a conscious commitment to get better, meaning making every day contain definitive recovery or therapeutic actions. Many people come to rock bottom numerous times, and then they just don't follow through with a definitive plan of daily action and progress. Uh, Learned helplessness can leave you stuck and miserable, passively wanting a whole life overhaul, but just hoping that a white horse will just pull up on you and you have no will or wherewithal to act on your own. You know, Mike used to just wail when he'd have a breakdown occasionally that he just wanted to die and he'd tried to die many times and everyone will be better off without the messes that he made. I always told him and anyone else who said this to me on a regular basis that they do not actually want to die. They just want their lives to change. They have to realize this on their own, however, and decide for themselves definitively that they do not want to die and instead want to turn things around. This is the old leading a horse to water but can't make them drink type thing. I've been trying to make them drink for years and really spun my wheels about it over and over, but now I'm just doing the leading to water in a more distance and hopefully more productive way. I personally believe that starting the healing process when you have been roundly affected by numerous traumas requires a a degree of isolation where you learn to exist without constant distractions and access to self-medicating things Uh, the ability to self-reflect without outside input or interruption, and adjusting to being alone and sitting with your feelings. This can be a dangerous and touchy time for people that are in advanced states of trauma or addiction, for whom the hardest, most terrifying thing to imagine is to be alone with feelings, with nothing to do but think, be alone, or sleep. The sleep thing is good and very restorative because most people in this type of life have very disordered uh, sleep schedules, or work-life balance, or addiction life balance, whatever, and lack of self-care, and they need to develop new practices and just rejuvenate from the cumulative lack of rest and nourishment and just, you know, regenerate their body. There's that old myth that it only takes 21 days to make or break a habit, or the 2190 rule where it's 21 days to make a new habit and then 90 to make it a permanent part of your life routine. 
This came out of a study in 1960 that was later found to be basically clinically unsupportable. And the clinical indications for making new habits and breaking old habits is actually anywhere from 18 to 254 days. So therein lies the issue for many people because humans by nature want things to be finite. That means they want there to be a definite end date. They want to have a definite um, end in sight, especially when the work they're doing is very difficult. And this is impossible to quantify in healing because healing is ongoing and literally does not conclude until the day you die. People, especially damaged people, have a really difficult time handling the concept of doing grueling work with no guarantee of its success or end date in sight. It's far more familiar and comfortable for them to elect to remain in their very negative patterns because they are familiar. Uh, When I first arrived at the rehab facility where I was sentenced, um, they gave you like a whole bunch of paperwork and one was a list of rules or very strong suggestions. And one of the first ones said, surrender to the process ASAP because your best thinking got you here. Really? The whole best thinking got you here was repeated often throughout the whole experience. And it really does make a lot of sense. I'm a very intelligent person. I'm very confident. I'm very convinced at times that I'm able to do a better job my way, or that I can handle myself on my own, or that my efforts with someone else who's been previously unhelped are going to succeed because I work harder and care more. But, you know, I, I actually sometimes feel that I know better than others about myself, even if they are very highly qualified. And that's a ridiculous thing to believe. Um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of true. I am very determined and I'm very accomplished when I set my mind and resources to something. But the history of my life is painfully obvious that in many ways, I do not know better about anything and I'm grievously in need of guidance. Um, You cannot possibly begin to heal without actively wanting to understand yourself and the consequences and origins of your thoughts and feelings and taking full responsibility for your own actions. It is totally impossible to heal and progress without accepting your role in everything that you've done and believing that you are the creator of your own reality and destiny rather than that you are a hapless victim of like every possible circumstance. Uh, Believing that life is out of your control does not promote belief in yourself to heal and make progress. However, uh, believing that they do have personal power and are not just beaten into submission by everything in life is an almost unimaginable and certainly insurmountable concept for some people. It requires a radical overhaul and in your thought processes, including um, attitudes, beliefs, uh, everything from addictive mindset, criminal thinking, worldview, faith, personal assessment of self. And that is way more of a process for deeply traumatized people, which is why I believe that a professional setting or intervention is the best or maybe the only viable option for advanced trauma or addiction. The acts of surrendering to the process and learning to flow with life rather than fight against it after years of instability and just bumping into everything they encounter is just extra next level severe for these type of folks. I myself am personally convinced that I could never have recovered and lived 
or much less be where I am right now, if I had not been whisked suddenly out of my surroundings and put in a secure facility where I was faced with myself daily in a safe environment. And again, I want to thank my judge, Judge Victor Haddad of Claremont County Common Pleas Court for revoking my ILC and giving me no more chances at exactly the right time and taking me out of hell. I don't like what happened while I was gone. I don't like everything that I lost, but everything that I gained is amazing. And thank you again, Judge Haddad. I've been trying to write you a letter, but my PO said you probably won't get it. Like, they might think that there's anthrax in it, but there's not. I'm going to write you a letter anyway and just see where it goes. In the early stages of healing, your first major ally and support system has to be you. You have to get comfortable or even just functional at sitting in your own mess having escalating awareness of the wreckage you've made with your poor choices and various afflictions and objectively notice and accept your role in it all. The longstanding defense mechanisms that allow people to stay like inside a thin candy shell of belief that your life is a series of devastating random impacts attributable to either other people or the fact that you must have desecrated a Native American burial ground or something. Um, My wonderful boyfriend is a very lovable but somewhat curmudgeonly Eeyore of sorts who kind of carries around his own personal thundercloud and has the world's smallest violin playing just for him as the soundtrack to his life. If he was a Care Bear, he would definitely be grumpy with the rain cloud on his tummy. I admit that he does actually have remarkably bad luck, but we now work on it by laughing at it. And we've theorized that he has like an ancient curse on him stemming from the fact that as a child, he unearthed an arrowhead in the backyard of his house in Dayton, and he must have shoved it up his ass or something, therefore desecrating everything and incurring the ire of the ages. <laughs> it has been a gentler, funny way to break the ice and lead him non-confrontationally towards slowly beginning to explore and process the toxic stuff he's been through, um, as well as, you know, he's kind of a not a rather tough nut to crack. You know, we've actually done really um, co-therapeutically for one another. And he has a lot of acumen in his view of me, which is remarkable considering that he knew nothing of my life after high school where we met for like the past 30 years. You know, let me briefly add a small caveat to this. Um, It is advised strongly that you avoid a relationship for at least a year into your recovery just for various reasons that I don't even have to spell out for you. And of course, I was also deeply in grief, you know, Mikey having only passed like a little over six months prior to us starting to talk. This was just a very lucky fluke that we reconnected when I came home from treatment. And it's been, I think, a really helpful relationship for both of us. He made a remarkably astute observation early on in our relationship that I probably deeply attached to Mikey because I missed living with my children and homemaking or having someone to take care of. You know, I'm rarely ever speechless unless I'm neurologically unable to find a word for a minute. Um, But my jaw jaw dropped then and it was a real stunner and it was completely accurate. Um, Anybody who knew us even distantly 
knows how I treated Mike and what he was to me. He was absolutely my little prince for sure. And I spoiled the crap out of him in every way I could and protected him in every way I could. I provided him everything I could think of that would bring him joy and distraction from his drug addiction or give him a reason to want to move forward. Uh, you know, anywhere from buying him game systems and games to locating a kitten who looked exactly like his beloved childhood cat Tigger and then bringing it home and naming the cat Tigger, uh, protecting, you know, who, him from who we consorted with and making it well, well known to any of our, you know, gangster-esque, rah-rah talking tough guys that we hung out with that he was never, ever to be spoken on or touched. I mean, everyone liked Mikey. You couldn't possibly not. It's just a lot of shady people wanted his spot because I took such good care of him. It was just merely a greedy, uh, utilitarian, drug addict attitude that made them disparage him to me, and I wouldn't allow it. There was literally no one that could have replaced him in my eyes at that time. I loved him in a myriad of ways, and one of them was definitely a very maternal or protective love. His mother and I both loved him the same admittedly fervent and dysfunctional way. He was the center of our world, and we just wanted to keep him happy and safe. And to this day, the two of us still refer to him as our boy. You know, there are a number of reasons that I attached to him so strongly, and that he was so important to me, and that his recovery and regaining his life and kids was so dire to me. But I do realize now that probably a large part of it was me missing the caretaking that I love to do. You know, reflecting on this idea has been very painful and disillusioning, but therapeutic for me. You know, it doesn't diminish the love that we had. It's just indicative of our individual issues and how things shook out for us with what type of individuals we both were and how we interacted. I mean, how could it ever have gone another way with two broken individuals in a deeply co-addicted relationship? We both did our best and loved each other the best way we knew how, but we both fell painfully short of a normal functional relationship as the rest of the world would view one flat out. I'm well aware of that in case anyone thinks that I'm not. It just still doesn't invalidate our love for each other. You know, early healing requires intentionally taking a personal inventory, you know, knocking yourself down to the studs, seeing what parts are essential and fundamentally you, and then jettisoning everything else that hasn't been healthy or useful or won't be in your new life. This is an extreme act of bravery, which frees and focuses you to forge ahead and heal in a more efficient form and have a better chance at tackling deeper issues and being successful in progressing. You know, this concept of taking a personal inventory will be covered in more depth on a future episode. So long story short, which my darling Mikey would say preceding every long story, um, you need to treat your emerging healing self gently. You're basically a newborn or a turtle without a shell. Some people are born with sort of a Kevlar vest pre-installed like me. Not to say it's never, I've never been affected by pain. I certainly have been deeply, but I'm also pretty tough stuff. And then some people are born you know, pitifully unarmed and vulnerable, and they must develop a kind of shell um, to protect them in some way. Um, Put yourself in isolation and calm for as long as necessary. Then surround yourself with gentle, helpful, supportive people who are either professionals in that field 
or people who have been proven to consistently truly love and care for you. This is an issue that is endlessly confusing for traumatized people and addicts. They have very, very disordered ideas of love and attachment and care from other people's. Um, practice constant self-care, not self-medication. Notice things that bring you joy or peace and also identify potential serious triggers that could impede you. Think of a few simple goals that will go a long way in making you feel great and accomplished and think of some rewards for bigger goals. Just basically tirelessly excavate your inner self with utter honesty and compassion for yourself and find your reason or reasons to go on. You know, my personal experience with my support system has been incredible, especially my mother. I have never really known my mother well as a person. I now realize. And we were estranged for most of the last several years because I made it that way. And she just could not handle watching my life utterly destruct. Um, I disappointed and worried and drove her nuts with anxiety and pain while I was out on the street and she had no power to stop what might happen to me. And I feel so sorry for that because it took a quite, quite a toll on her. But still, she's welcomed me back into her life when I started my recovery and first became incarcerated, and she was my rock during my incarceration. She provided everything I needed at exactly the time I needed it. Um, She never failed to pick up a call, which is so important, as you know, if you've ever been incarcerated, that phone call out is your only time out of that place in a day, and when somebody doesn't answer or the phone call goes badly, it's it ruins your day. I mean, period. Um, when I returned home, her life was basically devoted to taking me to my many, many, many appointments like probation, treatment, doctors, all that, getting my license back to the point that she didn't even go on her own vacation last summer in order to stay with me and help me out. You know, the best part is I've gotten to know her as a person through this now as an adult. And there are so many things about her, even though we are extremely different that I would like to emulate. She's an extremely gentle, ethical, fair, shy, unshakably moral person, and she's an impeccable caregiver. She's literally like a registered nurse, which is what she wanted to be. She is tirelessly provided without any complaint, like all the special things that I have needed, like the special food, special drinks, the medications, the surroundings that I require for my recovery. She's also replaced nearly all of my essential possessions that I lost in my apartment after Mike passed. There's no possible way I would be where I am right now without her support and that of my father, my wonderful boyfriend and his son, my sister, my ex-husband and my three kids, my mother-in-law who's struggling as well and has still been my rock after losing Mike, and a few choice friends who are either from my early life or from the street who are doing well in recovery and we support each other. I'm totally and completely aware that most people do not have the excellent support and the advantages and opportunities that I've had in life and that I still have now after everything I've done and all the havoc I've wreaked. But you can always start with yourself, become your own best friend, believe in yourself. I mean, some people have to believe that they fundamentally have a right to exist and be happy. It's literally like that, you know, um, Believe in yourself, have that self-esteem or just the beginnings of self-esteem, and then you will attract like-minded people and have a new circle. I promise there's a ton of support out there, even for someone who is literally alone in the world, no family, no friends, no resources, no nothing. It's there for the taking. You just have to reach out. So, you know, wrapping up, 
Stay tuned for our next episode, which is part four of the childhood trauma series. It's entitled The Scientist, Rewinding the Tape and Absorbing the Loss. I want to give a brief shout out here to my BFF, who of course is also named Mikey. He's about to graduate from his halfway house um, after doing prison time and then completing every single day of his uh, time in the halfway house and not absconding like most people do and surprising the hell out of me by taking his recovery seriously and making a lot of big changes. We've been really tight ever since we met. He lived with Mikey and me for the better part of a year in my house and saw, you know, everything about me, our relationship, and he's been a really wonderfully supportive friend and confidant. But he's also probably the only person in my life who has never, ever, ever mentioned or promised that they were going to get clean. I did not ever see that happening for him, but for some reason, it didn't really bother me and worry me about his life because he was just so happy-go-lucky and rarely just in a total depth of despair like most of us always were. He has crazy luck and crazy hustle, and he just always seemed to survive and come out on top, and this is really no exception. He's definitely meant to be here. He looks healthy and amazing. He's worked out and at a healthy weight rather than looking like their own corpse like most guys on the street do. You know, just a little, little side note invariably when you meet a guy on the street, the first thing he do does is pull out his phone and pull up an old picture of him and be like, that was me nine months ago. I've lost 80 pounds. Like, don't show me that. Like, don't give me a frame of reference for the functional, healthy person you could be. And now you're sitting here in front of me like this. Why did you do this? <laughs> but it's just, it's universal. It's, it's happened almost every time I met somebody. Um, his entire attitude and the things that he says are so different. And I'm so, so proud of him. It's just a joy being friends with him and seeing him blossom. He's about to hit the free world like a hurricane hitting the shores in a couple of days. And y'all just better watch out. Um, I love you to death, Mikey Ray Ray. And it's so, so exciting seeing you recover and become your best self. And you're awesome. I love you. Uh, welcome home. I'm also going to embark on something that I've also, I've always planned to do with this podcast, and that is to promote and acknowledge people who have been amazingly successful in their recovery and have made a successful future for themselves. The first of these people, rightfully so, is the amazing and beautiful and prolifically talented Miss Cayenne Moore. Uh, she's a recovering addict and owner of a small business called Cherry Blossom Custom Teas that's based right here in Claremont in Owensville. Um, in the last two years... Uh, or so she's gotten clean, married another recovering addict who's also gotten clean. He was out there in our scene and the two of them, you know, I don't think either of them will be offended when I say they were both one of the worst off people that I've seen in their addiction. And they've gotten married, both beaten it. Um, the two of them have completely turned their lives around, you know, beating their addictions, taking care of all their legal issues, hanging over their heads proactively, gotten jobs and started successful businesses, gotten their licenses back as well as vehicles, gotten into their own place despite them both being felons. And they've even had a beautiful little girl together and they now both have their pre-existing children back in their lives. Uh, she and her husband are still both in their young 20s, I believe, and they've still achieved all this. In addition to what a fantastic recovery she's had and what an inspiration she is, she's extremely talented and, and determined. 
Her business makes custom apparel, tumblers, accessories, license plates, almost anything customized, and it's very well executed. It's reasonably priced, and the customer service is fantastic. She absolutely deserves the business of anybody who is looking for quality custom apparel and gifts, and she's actually the artist uh, behind my very first piece of podcast art, which is the banner on my Facebook page for High Time for Change. She absolutely deserves the business of anybody. She's done the work. And again, her name is Kayen Moore, and it's spelled K-H-Y-E-N-N-E. And her business is called Cherry Blossom Custom Tees. That's the letter T apostrophe S. Check her out on Facebook to start with at Cherry Blossom Custom Tees. I will link the business page on my blurb about this episode. And also please join my Facebook group, High Time for Change, where I will be blogging and posting companion pieces to my podcast. Um, We can interact there and I'll link this in my blurb about this episode as well. So thank you so much for listening. It's my honor to have you join me. Be well, be healthy, love your people and love yourself today. See you next time. Thanks. Bye.